Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 351. Today's big Bible question, what does it mean to be lukewarm? Well, happy Saturday to you, friends. We're reading 2 Chronicles 13 today, as well as Haggai 1, John 2, and Revelation chapter 3. We're going to see a more radical side to Jesus today in both of our New Testament passages. In John 2, Jesus will fashion a whip out of cords and absolutely turn over business as usual in the temple of Jerusalem, business being the main problem there. The Father's house is not supposed to be a marketplace of any kind. Now, what Jesus does here is remarkable and somewhat dispelling of the Jesus is always soft and cozy sort of myth. Jesus is Lord, and though he is gentle and kind, he's also fiery and passionate, and he is the King of Kings. And here he overturns tables and chases people out of the temple courts with a whip. And lest you miss that, let me say it one more time, Jesus using a whip drove everyone out of the temple courts and their sheep and their oxen also out. Uh, That would be a lot of people in a very big place. So his disciples saw this and probably sat there just stunned until they remembered Numbers 25.13, which uh, says, zeal for your house will consume me. Fascinating that Jesus was consumed by zeal and the very opposite of lukewarm. Now, I do recall that way back in the day, episode 155, we talked about the dangers of being lukewarm from this very passage of Revelation, and we're going to talk about the dangers again today uh, also, but this time we're going to examine what lukewarmness is in a slightly deeper and different way, and uh, I think it's going to be a good reminder for us, because honestly, in rich countries where most of our needs are met, even in the midst of a pandemic, you and I can have a tendency to slide into lukewarmness, and I suspect we need constant exhortations to help us not do that. So let's read our Revelation chapter 2 passage today. I'm sorry, chapter 3 today and discuss it. Revelation chapter 3 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, what which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels." Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the True One, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I've placed before you an open door that no one can close, because you have little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to endure. I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. 
I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I have become wealthy and need nothing, and you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed, and your shameful nakedness may not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So, in his letter to the church at Laodicea, Jesus presses that church using just about the strongest language he possibly could use in verse 15 and 16. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So, because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. And we talked about it in episode 155. The word there for vomit might have even stronger connotations than our own word for vomit. And that shows us this is serious business. Now, I want to focus us exactly uh, on what lukewarm means here. We did define the word in episode 155 as well. Uh, The word Jesus uses here is kleros, and it means warmish or tepid, uh, or as the uh, Thayer's lexicon says, the condition of a soul wretchedly fluctuating between a torpor and a fervor of love. And torpor means kind of a stunned state. One thing we didn't discuss, however, is the reason that Jesus describes the Laodicean church as lukewarm. And we see it in verses 17 and 18, where Jesus says, For you say, I am rich, I've become wealthy, I need nothing, and you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed. It's And and he keeps going. But the key there is that one sentence. You say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy and need nothing. What triggered this rebuke from Jesus? Now, it appears that the Laodicean church was doing really pretty well off financially, and it didn't think it needed anything. Now, I don't necessarily think that means for sure that the church had a big bank account or something like that and a lot of money sacked away. I think it means that the members of the church, you know, who the church is, the church isn't a building, it's people, and the members of the church were like quite wealthy. So maybe this is a church in a rich part of town, and we know Laodicea was like doing great financially, they had a lot of money there, and so this church, they maybe thought all their needs were met. Things were going great for them in the natural, so they apparently lacked zeal, passion, and heat. And because of their great wealth and the fact that all of their material needs were met, they couldn't see how much they truly lacked in terms of heart, passion, and the presence of the Spirit in their midst. This attitude of, of feeling like they needed nothing led to an incredible amount of complacency. So much so that Jesus was considering 
spewing them out. So why was this lack of need and extreme sort of self-sufficiency such a big deal to Jesus? And make no mistake, it was a really big deal. Well, Dr. Craig Keener gives us a great answer to that question. And he says, listening to Jesus's rebuke, his words to the church in Laodicea are uncomfortable, not only because of the issues they address, but simply because they constitute a rebuke itself. In the therapeutic mode of modern Western Christianity, we do not want to hear from a God who will speak harshly to us. Many Christians feel victimized and regard as insensitive any criticism of their own or anyone else's values. But Christ has a harsh word for many of us. To be sure, Jesus speaks tenderly to those who have truly been broken, to the weak and the marginalized, to those who have suffered, We see this in chapter 2, in the earlier parts of chapter 3. We should not be callous in applying Jesus' forthright rebukes to Laodicea to our brothers and sisters who are working through genuine pain in their lives. But Jesus' words strike like thunder those churches that are self-satisfied and secure in their own endowments. Those who like the Laodicean society and its church feel little need for help from outside themselves. Yet, Even when Jesus rebukes complacent, self-satisfied Christians, we must not miss the tone of his voice. His cries of reproof flow not from irrational anger, but from a broken heart. As verse 19 tells us, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Then he invites us over for dinner. Uh, The current Western idiom, do lunch, may not be strong enough in this instance if we will but open the door to him. In Revelation 3.20, God desires intimacy with us in the deepest recesses of our lives. The focus of this text is Jesus' reproof and his summons to unrepentant Christians. The danger here is the church in Laodicea reflected the values of its culture, which was proud, self-sufficient, not needing any outside help, including any help from the Lord, as we see in verse 17. They contrasted with suffering churches that recognized their own desperation for God's intervention. Comparing the church in North America with churches in many other parts of the world, I fear, says Dr. Keener, that the problems of Laodicea's Christians are most like our own. We hear of massive suffering elsewhere and often find theological or sociological explanations for it to avoid the thought that we could experience the same hardships. Many of us are eager to export the profound learning of North American Christianity without humbly first listening to the lessons learned by other churches who have suffered far more than we have. Prayerlessness or dry devotional times, so typical of many of our lives in the West, often stems from a lack of sense of need before God. Our material abundance can, if we are unwary, prove a source of spiritual poverty as it did for the Christians of Laodicea. And I'm going to read that line again from Dr. Keener because it's deep and profound. Hear this. Our material abundance can, if we are unwary or uncareful, prove a source of spiritual poverty as it did for the Christians of Laodicea. Our indifference to persecution, political oppression, and other forms of suffering pervasive among our spiritual siblings in many regions likewise betrays our contentment with the world as we experience it. As in Laodicea, our prosperity can blind us. Note this comment from Richard Stearns of World Vision, who was the former CEO of a company that made fine china. He says, 
If the book of Revelation were written today and there was a letter to the church in America, I think it would decry the fact that our materialism and wealth have deafened our ears and blinded our eyes to the cause of the poor. Now, some of you hearing all this, maybe you think, oh, that sounds like a little bit of wokeness to me. And I would counter by saying that, number one, Dr. Keener wrote this book in the 90s, as in the 1990s. And number two, though I have no desire to be woke in a worldly sense, it is Jesus and Jesus, the Lord and the King of Kings, who consistently and strongly calls us, his people, to actively help and give to the poor and marginalized. And he even says in Matthew 25, 31-46, that those who take care of the poor and least of these with their lives are taking care of Jesus himself and thus will enter into eternal life. And those who ignore the poor and least of these are ignoring Jesus and thus will enter into eternal separation from God. So brothers and sisters, it's not a sin to be wealthy, but it can be a great danger that can lead to great spiritual poverty if we are not careful and if we develop the attitude of the Laodiceans where we think, well, we need nothing. Sometimes God will carry us through dark and difficult times, perhaps like what we're going through in 2020, to disabuse us of the Laodicean spirit so that we will realize just exactly how much we need God. And rather than be lukewarm, we'll, we will be hot in our pursuit of him. Well, let's continue in our reading with Second Chronicles chapter 13, verse 1. In the th- 18th year of Israel's king Jeroboam, Abijah became king over Judah, and he reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Micaiah, daughter of Uriel. She was from Gibeah. There was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Abijah set his army of warriors in order with 400,000 fit, fit young men. Jeroboam arranged his mighty army of 800,000 fit young men in battle formation against him. Then Abijah stood on Mount Zimmerelm, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, and said, Jeroboam and all Israel hear me. Don't you know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? But Jeroboam, son of Nebat, a servant of Solomon, son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord. Then worthless and wicked men gathered around him to resist Rehoboam, son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young, inexperienced, and unable to assert himself against them. And now you are saying you can assert yourself against the Lord's kingdom, which is in the hand of one of David's sons. You are a vast number and have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made for you as gods. Didn't you banish the priests of the Lord, the descendants of Aaron and the Levites, and make your own priests like the peoples of other lands do? Whoever comes to ordain himself with a young bull and seven rams may become a priest of what are not gods. But as for us, the Lord is our God. We have not abandoned him. The priests ministering to the Lord are descendants of Aram. Aaron and the Levites serve at their task. They offer a burnt offering and fragrant incense to the Lord every morning and every evening, and they set the rows of the bread of presence on the ceremonially clean table. They light the lamps of the gold lampstand every evening. We are carrying out the requirements of the Lord our God while you have abandoned him. Look, God and his priests are with us at our head. The trumpets are ready to sound the charge against you. Israelites, Don't fight against the Lord God of your ancestors, for you will not succeed. Now Jeroboam had sent an ambush around to advance from behind them, so they were in front of Judah, and the ambush was behind them. Judah turned and discovered that the battle was in front of them and behind them, so they cried out to the Lord. 
Then the priests blew the trumpets, and the men of Judah raised the battle cry. When the men of Judah raised the battle cry, God routed Jeroboam and all of Israel before Abijah and Judah. So the Israelites fled before Judah, and God handed them over to them. Then Abijah and his people struck them with a mighty blow, and 500,000 fit young men of Israel were killed. The Israelites were subdued at that time. The Judahites succeeded because they depended on the Lord, the God of their ancestors. Abijah pursued Jeroboam and captured some cities from him, Bethel, Jeshana, and Ephron, along with their surrounding villages. Jeroboam no longer retained his power during Abijah's reign. Ultimately, the Lord struck him and and he died. However, Abijah grew strong, acquired 14 wives and fathered 22 sons and 16 daughters. The rest of the events of Abijah's reign, along with his ways and his sayings, are written in the writing of the prophet Ido. Now, I want to point out, based on what we've already talked about, verse 18. I'll read it again because it's one of those that should be read twice. The Judahites succeeded because they depended on the Lord. They weren't self-sufficient. They were God-sufficient. The Judahites succeeded because they depended on the Lord, the God of their ancestors. Amen. We continue. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The Lord of armies says this, These people say the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now the Lord of armies says this, Think carefully about your waves. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. The Lord of Armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house, and I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields, or on people and animals and on all that your hands produce. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God in the words of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, so the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people, I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. The Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They began work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. John chapter 2 verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was also there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well when the wine ran out. Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked, my hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, 
Now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water, after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the groom and told him, Everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior, but you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. The Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changer sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changer's coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man for he himself knew what was in man. Amen. Well, dear friends, may it be a good weekend for you. May the Lord protect you and keep you, you safe. May he cause us all to walk in passion and zeal and not lukewarmness. Good day to you and Godspeed.